leadership in cybersecurity isn't just about understanding threats. It's about leading a team to navigate them with confidence. At CPF Coaching LLC, we specialize in taking your leadership skills to the next level. With over 15 years in the cybersecurity field, we empower professionals and startups to reach unprecedented heights. Imagine having a personalized coaching experience tailored to your unique career ambitions. From strategic planning to masterful pitch and interview preparations, we're here to guide you through every challenge. Join us for our unique value proposition workshops or dive into our vibrant learning community for continuous skill advancement. Don't just be a part of the industry. Redefine it. Visit cpfcoaching.com for more information. Discover the leader within. Contact CPF Coaching LLC today and schedule your strategic session. everyone and welcome to another episode of breaking into cybersecurity. We have a different format this week, but we will still talk about some of the same topics. This week we have an amazing guest and soon we'll get to her. But first, make sure that you follow us on LinkedIn and you have myself, Naomi, Denise Busley, did they say that right? Diana. Diana Busley. Early. <laughs> Follow us on LinkedIn. I'll post the updated uh, links to everyone's URL. If you are on YouTube, hit subscribe and hit that notification button. And if you are on podcast, after the fact, share it with all your friends and family. Today, due to the format, we might not be able to show your questions on the screen, but do type them in to the comment box. We will reply to them. And bonjour, Mikael. Uh, we see your comments coming in already and we're saying hello so um, type in where you're calling from and we'll we'll recognize that in a bit but we're all here for a special event here at the gmu arlington campus for the cyber cyber future foundations cyber talent week wow say that quickly too many times um <laughs> here in dc in person in person oh my God. Live. Yes. i know that's the first ever um yes. So today we we talked about some topics earlier and Diana had some amazing points where she talked about some of the things that we can do with our education system. And I wanted her to come on and share this with, with our audience. So first, let's take a step back. Do you want to give a highlight of your experience and your background? Sure. So I'm Diana Burley. I am currently Vice Provost for Research at American University, uh, but I am a longtime 20 plus year cybersecurity workforce um, advocate, uh, program developer, standard setter, um, I have worked in the field for 20 plus years. I've worked at the National Science Foundation, leading the CyberCorps program, which is a scholarship program for cybersecurity students. 
I led the development of the first set of global curricula for post-secondary institutions in cybersecurity, um, have led a bunch of different task forces and initiatives um, for the federal government, for private sector, uh, all about how do we build uh, a robust cybersecurity workforce that's capable and um, diverse and ready to protect our digital assets. So. Wow. Wow. S such a such a great background. Um, how did you get involved with the Cyber Future Foundation? Uh, so I met Val a few years ago, pre-pandemic, um, and it was really all about the curriculum, the curricular framework that I had developed. And Cyber Future Foundation was looking to to think about how industry could play a role and uh, collaborating with academia. And so he called and I went to a meeting and the rest is history. I can't say that about. Can't say that about. That's right. Draws you in. We love him. That's right. Yeah, I myself, um, I'm here representing the whole Cyberhuman Initiative. And uh, Naomi is representing the Cybersecurity Gatebreakers <laughs> Foundation. Um, we're... This is a special podcast. Like we said, we, we're all representing ways that we can uh, achieve future actions, not just highlighting the problems, but future actions to improve what we're doing. So let's first talk about like what are some of the problems that we have today, and then we can go into some of the actions that we can take towards them. Yeah, so I would start big mm -hmm. and say the field has a branding problem, right? If I say, do you want to be a cybersecurity professional or what is a cybersecurity professional? We would all say something different, yes. right? And so because we would all say something different, it makes it hard for us to encourage the next generation to join because they're hearing different things from, from us. Then it's, well, what does it take to become a member of the cybersecurity workforce? And again, it's always something different, Right. Um, so that's a big problem. Um, the educational system is not set up, whether we're talking about K-12 or even in higher education, it's not set up to properly um, provide the, the base skill set that we need uh, to do that. Um, there's, you know, we think, I mean, there's so many challenges. I hate to be negative, right? So it's like, but we're, we're working on solutions for all of these. time to be So um, if I think about recruiting, um, there's questions around the way that we write position descriptions, the way that we put requirements out so that it's not clear what we're actually trying to get and what people need to have to enter the field. Um, there's often a discrepancy between what entry-level people need and what people who are entering higher um, need. And so there's there's lots of challenges. <laughs> wow. Yeah, definitely. And I, I know Naomi and myself, we, we've talked about some of this before, but let's kind of break it down by um, the stages of the process. We have our workforce today, we have our workforce tomorrow, and we have our workforce for the future. So okay. the future is the bigger problem. So let's, let's talk about it today first. Okay. So um, people that are in the current workforce, what are some of the challenges that you see that you're facing trying to transition into a cybersecurity role? So for people who are in the general workforce yeah. who want to transition in, so one is um, what level do they want to go into? And, and so understanding what professional development opportunities they need to engage in in order to actually make that transition, right? Um, finding the right mentors to help them to, to make those decisions. 
finding companies that are willing to take a risk uh, and encourage them to make those transition. But those are those are difficult things to do. And then understanding how what they know now or what they do now actually integrates into what they might be doing as a cybersecurity professional um, is also challenging. And so people are often unable to to visualize what that transition might look like and how um, how they can actually take those steps. There are lots of programs around, but again, when we say cybersecurity, that means so many different things. So how do you know what to do and where to go? Um, so th those are some of the challenges with, um, with making that transition. Uh, and Naomi, with the Cybersecurity Gatebreakers Foundation, mm -hmm. what are some of the things that uh, your organization is doing to help the current workforce of today? See, what's interesting though, I don't think the workforce is the issue, Chris. I'm always saying this. I don't think there's a supply problem. I think it's a demand problem where the hiring managers and the people trying to hire for these roles don't understand the need for entry-level people and they don't understand why or how easy it is. So what my foundation does, we create education and opportunities for hiring managers and win their hearts and minds to be able to hire the next generation and do it the right way. So that's what we do. And it, it's a lot harder than I thought, just having conversations with CISOs and hiring managers. They always say kind of the same things. It's like, we understand there's a need for entry-level people. However, we just don't want to take on the risk or I don't have enough time or I don't have enough money, whatever that is. I, we are now at this point and you mentioned the workforce issue. There's 83% of us, Chris, that are 35 and older. I won't say how old I am, but I'm much older than that. Now I will say in the generations to come, who is going to train and mentor that next 17%? It's going to be, we're, we're going to leave. We're going to retire. We want to retire. Oh, at least I do. I don't know about you guys. Right? I, want to, I want to get out of here. I want to sit on the beach and get fat. But <laughs> I want to retire and I don't think it's going to be quite as possible as it is in the path that we're taking now. So I'm really trying to head that off in the next 10 years or 15 years that we have and try to win hearts and minds for the hiring managers to be able to build the demand. Again, I don't think it's a supply problem. I'm so glad you said that because I agree. I think that there is a tremendous demand problem. And, and I like to ask people, when you look at a position description and you look at that long list of requirements that's there, even for entry level positions, have those requirements been written to weed people out or are they written to bring mm -hmm. people in? <laughs> so I think that we have to flip the way that we're putting requirements into position descriptions so that we are using them to bring people into the profession instead of putting up all of these artificial walls mm -hmm. that aren't there because you need to be able to do that. They're there because it's a more efficient way of narrowing the pool down and screening. I don't think it's less sinister than that. I think people just copy and paste other people's I think, <laughs> it's, I think it's laziness. I don't think it has anything to do with maliciousness at all. They're like, here's our, I need to hire a pen tester. Great. Google on pen test job description. And then like the first one that comes out, copy and paste. I think it's a bit of laziness. I think it's just a little bit of lack of education. That's what we're really trying to build. I think it's a combination. Yeah. Let's try a little harder, guys. Well, one of the questions we have from uh, Paul Cummings is, how can we help leaders set guidance and guidance counselors up for helping to illuminate these cyber roles? Well, let's talk about Paul right now. Let's talk about Paul, like Cyber Human Initiative, right? You want to talk about what he's working on? Well, yes. Well, the Cyberhuman Initiative, what we work on is those that are in the current workforce or the next generation workforce. Uh, we're not talking about kids yet, 
help them to identify where in cyber that they're interested mm -hmm. by providing them with first a holistic training of all the different areas in cyber before they're ever asked to pick have them go through assessments where they show them where they might be interested but still provide them the holistic approach and then provide them after with coaching once they've identified after seeing the whole field mm -hmm. and not just a SOC analyst or a pen tester mm -hmm. what they might be interested in then providing them with that additional education and we do it with free training that companies put out and that are freely available that's really the foundation to Paul's question, the answer to Paul's question, right? Good one, Paul. Putting that pathway there, right? So not just, and I'm sorry, my phone's ringing. There, I stopped it. Um, but to, so to help people understand what are the possibilities, how well do I line up with those possibilities, right? By those assessments and the aptitude and understanding what mm -hmm. is where my interests are. And then once you do that matchmaking, helping them to see the pathway mm -hmm. to get there. It's really that simple, those three steps. Here's the, here's the landscape, here's where you most align with parts of that landscape, and here's a pathway for you to move forward in that. Yeah, and we, we've been using some of the, the tools that you probably help implement through CyberSeq and yeah. the NIST NICE framework mm -hmm. to help individuals see the knowledge, skills, and abilities, because mm -hmm. a, a lot of our candidates are transitioning military vets that might not know where they end up, right. uh, as well as other people. We welcome everyone. We have uh, candidates internationally, but some of our resources like CyberSeeker focus for the US. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, we, we kind of help them find that pathway. So yeah. how do we even get them to see cyber as a, a, a possible job field? We're talking about the future generation now. Well, I mean, it goes back to that famous quote, if you can see it, you can be it, right? And so we have to put people in front of our younger generation who are performing in these different roles. Nobody said, I want to be a doctor because they had never seen a doctor, right? They know what a doctor is. They've been going. They see people in their community. People see police officers, and so kids want to become police officers. They want to become firefighters, right? Same thing. We have to put cybersecurity professionals across the spectrum that look like the various members of the community and, and then allow them to begin to dream in a way that, that pushes them and propels them. Oh, of showing what our kids good information security looks like instead we're showing them in movies and in tiktoks what a hacker might look like so they only see that now and that side of it and they're glorified <laughs> and are we glorifying the hacker community not hackers sorry hackers are not all bad let's say let's say all unethical actors so are we showing that more than what we should be showing which is like here is security at your level here's security at everyone's security's everyone's responsibility and here's what security looks like in a school or in a hospital or whatever like i think if we took more of a personal responsibility a shared responsibility of what good information security is then more people would be interested in it for sure i i think so i think if we even flip the paradigm from being security to hey this is my personal safety mm -hmm. um if you can create a safety culture around uh, their digital identity, mm -hmm. their their digital trail, wow. how they interact with cyber platforms. Then they see 
you're protecting themselves and mm -hmm. as they grow up then they know how to help protect organizations. Struggled so mightily with just masks during the pandemic. <laughs> do you think people are going to want to do that for digital safety? Know. Oh my God. We also, have to, we also have to recognize that different generations think differently, mm -hmm. right? What's private to me is not the same as, or what should be private to me. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. That's the same true. as what my kids think, uh -huh. right? I mean, you remember it's that everybody started taking pictures of their food with their, with their phones and I didn't understand it then. I don't understand it. Don't no, be honest. No, I don't get it. But, but it's a thing, right? And so, you know, part of this is is translation and making sure that when we say words like privacy and security and safety, that we're saying it from from our I'm going to say our generation, right? Yeah. But but also, what does it mean to that next generation, and how can we? help them to understand how that fits into this whole cybersecurity. You know what I've heard? I've heard Gen Z doesn't even care anymore. They will gladly give out their private information because it's just what they're normal. They're like just less skill it anyway. Right. So what is what do you think? Like what do you think Gen Z is going to care about in terms of privacy if they already give away their things for free? I don't know. Oh, that's why? Really a question, right? If they're already giving them that's how they have been raised, right? I mean we we were there when you first got a grocery store card, right? You used to just have a coupon. Then you got a card and you didn't really think about the fact that the grocery store was collecting all of the data on what you bought, mm -hmm. right? And then, then you start to say, oh, you know what? They're collecting the data on everything that I bought. But for, for kids that are 12 or 20, right? That's all they've ever known. So that's not a part of what they think about. And so it really is a question of, what is private data? What does that actually mean? And how can we help people to understand the ramification? Right, nothing is free. If if you didn't pay for it, then you, you are, are the problem. Say <laughs> yes. Uh, you know what's interesting in technical terms, like practical speaking, when you sell your information or you give it away, companies are making decisions for you based off of that data. So for example, we've got mortgage lending companies, right? Think about that rocket loan. You click one up, it already has all your information, your spending history, your credit, your mortgages, all the things in your name, and it approves you based off of that information. So if you're giving away false information or you have information that companies are collecting about you, you don't know what they're doing about it, they're selling it, they're modifying it, you don't know. Now companies are making decisions based off of everything they know about you and it might adversely affect you. So right. now I can't buy a house, now I can't travel, now I can't, think about the social credit system going on in China right now, think about mm -hmm. that. You can no longer participate in society because you have the data given to the companies that are making decisions about you and I think that's super, super dangerous. I don't think our children these days, and I do have two children, they they understand they're not allowed to talk about anything about their personal life ever on to anyone not even just in like technical but like anyone but we also have you know we think about disenfranchised communities and we think you know one of the things that always concerns me is when i see all of the healthcare apps and the healthcare devices that they're advertising on television now where you can you can check your blood sugar and you can check your heart but, you know, your heart, uh, blood pressure and all of these things and the data can go directly to your doctors. And isn't that wonderful? Mm -hmm. Is it? No, because then your insurance rates might because go. Because then you're insurance yeah, right. And so, so you have to think about that. Yeah. And then what's happening is we are forced into making these false choices, mm -hmm. right? I want my blood sugar checked. I want my blood pressure checked. Mm -hmm. I want my doctor to know 
And I don't know any other way to do that. And it's so if I don't do that, then what happens to me and my health if I'm in a, if I have a crisis or a chronic condition? And so I'm forced to make this artificial trade off of what I perceive as my ability to maintain my health with giving data to my insurance company that might make my rates go up. And how do I do that? Right. It's one thing when we talk about the grocery store and I can simply not use my discount card. I can. Mm -hmm. But but what if I need that discount? But then when we start talking about health data, it becomes a whole different ballgame. Mm -hmm. Companies are telling us or they're telling us in that really small print. Or even you have tech companies that are supplying this technology for free, for to, free. To, to, to disenfranchise communities mm -hmm. to provide them with access. Um, mm -hmm. But you're collecting all the information. And write-offs. Yes. Yeah. Policies are being made. If you're giving this mm -hmm. data to legislature and they say, oh, this group of people, they only do this and we're going to give them do make them do this way, right? There are so many repercussions that we haven't even talked about exactly. what technology is doing. And then if we're okay with giving out our private information and we're okay with companies selling it and sharing with one another, like what does that actually mean to our future generations? I'm almost scared. I'm glad I'm on, on the other side of like 40. So now I'm just like, I'll just let it know. But I, I do worry about our future generations. And I almost want to say like, how can no one else see this? Not just from a privacy perspective, but also from a security perspective. Mm -hmm. We have so much at stake. Think about all the critical infrastructure right now that's public facing that doesn't need to be. Think traffic lights, hospital systems, pipelines. These are things that have already been hacked and that um, threat actors can just come in. And guess what? I'm driving down the street to your house, Chris. I'm going to go visit you. And the lights go off. You know, and the traffic lights go off and, and now there's accidents and now I'm in danger. These are the things that we don't even think about because we don't think they're connected, but they are. Water treatment facilities, things like yeah, that. And drink water, right? Yeah. yeah. We so, think about it. Let's take a step back. So we, we know that um, ensuring that people are aware of their digital identity and to, to secure it is key. Mm -hmm. What do we do? to our current generation that's in school to help make them aware of it so that by the time they leave school, you're ready for the workforce and they can help be actionable from by the time they get out. Because right now companies like Naomi mentioned, oh, we can't take on junior workers because we have to still invest another year or two in them mm -hmm. before they're production ready. What can we do to help um, reduce that ramp up speed for them in schools? Well, I mean, I, I think there's two parallel tracks here, right? One is about the general citizen, regardless of what field they go into. And no one left high school without learning basic mathematics, English, social studies, science, fill in the blank, right? I firmly believe no one should leave high school. Frankly, no one should leave elementary school, <laughs> but, but we'll get there without basic digital literacy. That has to become a part of the curriculum. Yes. You're going to fifth period algebra. Your best friend is going across the hall to fifth period digital basics or whatever we call it. So that's number one has to happen um, because that not only does that make more informed citizens, but it also lays the foundation for people who ultimately will go into the field. Right. We didn't all start off saying I'm going to become a computer scientist and now I'm going to start taking courses. We took some of those building blocks along the way. So we have to in, input those, insert those into those, those school systems in order to get that done. 
And then for the people who are going to be specialists, mm -hmm. right, then we can build augmented curriculum and stronger courses to, to give them the foundation and the pathway so that they can move into higher education, they can move into these positions. Companies are going to have to really reckon with this notion of, and, and as Naomi said, it's a demand side problem, right? It's like, if you want entry-level people in any other field, you don't expect the entry-level people to come in with five years of experience because that's not an entry-level person. You expect them to come in straight from college or straight from that training program or what have you so that they can then get the experience to move on. And we've got to reckon with the disconnect between what we say we want and what we're actually needing. Yes. <laughs> and here's where I go. I don't think cybersecurity is that difficult, guys. Like, I really don't. At least it, it's not now. It was maybe 10, 20 years ago. But there's references, white papers, books, protocols, like all these frameworks that we can use. And a lot of people are reading those on their off, on their own time. And they're doing home labs. And they're doing all the right things. But then when it comes to hiring them, people are just like, oh, you're not good enough. Or you don't have this education. Or you didn't go to this camp. Whatever it is. And I think that needs to go away. That whole idea of what a well-rounded cybersecurity professional is needs to stop because I don't think it's, it requires all the years of experience that people think needs to happen because we are different these days. We have evolved. We no longer need the databases and networking, all the things that you think are fundamental. You no longer need that. You can just work in an abstract manner. Think about how we're, we're cloud is right now. Exactly. Everything is just virtualized and abstracted away where you can actually just work on the securing of the infrastructure as code. Like there's not a lot there. Like I just feel like it's not as hard, but that's, that's, that's part of the disconnect, too, because on the one hand, when somebody says you go to a fair or something and somebody says, what does it take to be a successful cybersecurity professional? And you start talking about you have to be self-motivated and you have to be willing to go out there and learn on your own and do all these things. Well, then somebody goes and does that. And then we say, but we're not going to hire you because you didn't get a degree. Oh, in. Post, and it's like, oh, post. what is it? You know, what do we want? And what about the disenfranchised? disenfranchised or those that don't have the the access to the technology how can they how can they ever even catch up to, to be able to do that it's hard i mean it, there, i don't have a magic answer i wish that i did but but it's hard and you know we saw that with the pandemic when everybody went home and we we moved online and we said oh well the kids will just learn remotely now and there were a whole lot of kids for whom that was simply not feasible for a host of reasons, technology or lack thereof being one of them, but not the only one, right? So we can't say that we don't know what that problem is and we don't understand it. What we've got to do is to acknowledge it and say, and now we're going to work to fix it. And part of the fixing is making the technology available, but that's not the only fix. If you have the technology, but you don't know what to do with it, then what is the point? If you have the technology, but you don't have food to eat, you're going to sell the tech. I was just talking to one of our colleagues about this. You're going to sell the technology to get money to do your basic, to, to satisfy your basic needs, right? And so it really is a holistic way that we have to think about, um, about this development. And, and the other thing to Naomi's earlier point, I think when you bring on junior candidates, I think part of the requirement for all companies is having that continuous education as being 5%, 10% of their job time where they have that continuous education and not just during the first five years, mm -hmm. for the rest of their career journey. Because 
technology is evolving every 18, 20 months. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have that continuous education, you end up with a workforce that's five, 10 years behind very quickly. Um, I I see, I I hate to call out the government, but (laughs) (laughs) I mean, since they're right there. (laughs) (laughs) There's like some, some departments in the government that, they wanted to go to the cloud, um, Project Jedi. Mm-hmm. And then when they got all the proposals, you're like, whoa, whoa, cloud companies, we're not that advanced yet. We, we need to take a step back and reevaluate these requirements because we don't think we're ready to go that far. And sure, it's a special use case being national security and defense related, but I think it's the same problem that you have with state governments that you have with local governments is that they didn't have the funding. They didn't have the drive to evolve as things continue to evolve. So you have a small town police force that um, has one computer and a fax machine in their lobby. And and that's all the technology. It's about building the infrastructure, right? It's the same thing with the educational system. It's the same thing with anything, right? You have to be willing to invest in the foundation in order to to realize those benefits on the other side. And you, if you're not going to invest in the foundation, you're not going to be able to implement the advanced tools. You're not going to be able to implement the advanced techniques. You're not going to be able to do the advanced work because there's no infrastructure. When we talk about developing the workforce and people used to say, oh, well, medical doctors say, well, you know what? Nobody goes straight from fifth grade to medical school. They don't. They don't. <laughs> I mean, they just their residency, right? They, they have to go to. They have to go to high school. They have to do undergraduate, four years of college, right? Then they start moving into medical school. Then they do residency. Then they do interns, and then they become full scale. You know, that's a long time. And if we're not willing to invest in that amount of time to build our cybersecurity workforce, what do we think? is going to happen. There is no magic solution. There's no dust that we can sprinkle on people. And all of a sudden they become cybersecurity professionals. The investment has to be there. Even for example, non-technical roles like um, dirty jobs used to show all these jobs that didn't have technology in them. And you're slowly weaning because they were all journeyman focused type Mm -hmm. careers where a mentor, a senior individual Mm -hmm. passed on their knowledge to someone else. Mm -hmm. And as no one gets interested in, in those types of roles, no one does it anymore. It's true. HVAC, all that stuff is dying. Yeah. Welding, Welding. construction. I mean, everything, like if if you don't have someone to model off of, um, you you don't see yourself doing it. That's right. That's right. So I, let's talk about solutions then, because I feel like we, we described the problem really well. What I'm hearing overall, well, overwhelmingly, is that we can't rely on the government, right? Like, so this is not a government's problem to solve, even that the bureaucracy would stop them from doing it very well. So like, what are some things that we can do in, even in the short term to help solve this problem? Well, I, I don't want to say it's not the government's problem to solve. I think it's everybody's problem to yeah. solve. And we all have a role to play yeah. in that, right? Government provides funding. Mm-hmm. They often provide frameworks. But they're not going to solution this on their own. And so I think that depending on where you are, then, you know, work in your niche, work in your area. And so if it's, 
thinking about how to shift policy. So if we think about K-12 schools, right? K-12 schools are, are directed, the curriculum, the programming is directed by the state, whether it's the, the governor's office, the state legislature, or the local community. And so it's, all right, how do we begin to influence them to make the argument that this needs to be included in the curriculum. It needs to be included in the state level exams that students have to take periodically as they go through their schooling. And, and, and honestly, those exams aren't necessarily, this is math, this is science, right? Sometimes they're just state standards that you need to meet at a certain grade level. So it could be implemented across the curriculum. At the same time that we're working that, we also recognize that there are infrastructure issues in the community that need to be put into place so that everyone has access to broadband, right? And not just access to broadband in terms of the technology, Mm-hmm. but access to broadband in terms of what do you do with the technology <laughs> once you have it, yeah. right? And that means educating the community. That means educating the parents who are overwhelmingly the primary influence on kids and what they ultimately want to do in their lives. So how do we help our parents understand what this is, right? Industry, they have a significant role to play as well. And it's not just about, and I think and I think it's wonderful and I applaud the companies that are distributing technology and saying, we're doing our part, mm-hmm. but that alone is not enough. And so there have to be whole, holistic approaches that, um, that provide technology, but provide other types of resources, provide education, training. provide awareness, provide training, that allow us to use these in an effective way. And then we have to sit back and think about how can we scale these, right? Because we have lots of wonderful examples. I can tick off a thousand examples that I have seen across the spectrum that are great. The question is, how do we scale that? And how do we make it work for multiple communities across this country? Yeah, and I mean, like Naomi's Gatebreakers Foundation convincing uh, private companies that, hey, you, you do have to change your approach. You do have to change how you're looking at recruiting. And, and then my approach where you also have that continuous education, mm-hmm. that's that's going to be the, the one of the best ways to, once you have them out of school mm-hmm. and in the general populace to continue training, doctors have to do continuous education. Mm-hmm. Accountants have to do continuous education education that's right all these other trades have to do continuous education but somehow cybersecurity doesn't put that on the companies to do it they expect the individual to do it they expect the individual to do it right interesting yeah oh wow we've gone over your half hour don't you have a call that you have to do oh, it's or um we have one of the uh, let's go through some of the comments and this is going to be a little strange but um let's see <laughs> Okay, so um, let's see. Uh, Paul Cummings, five years in the field isn't an entry-level role um, and can't be undone. Um, So Paul comes from an interesting, um, uh, actually, this is Chris Frazier mentioning this, um, that Paul Cummings, five years in the field isn't an entry-level role then the job needs to be redone to reflect that. And if the CISSP isn't a requirement, that is spot on. I think it's just because companies are lazy, honestly. Like think about what college really represents. It's a proxy for like vaguely understanding 
you know, topic. Like, so companies, instead of testing a candidate, they'll just look at the resume and be like, okay, I'm going to use your college degree as a proxy for my understanding that you might understand something. So they use it as a proxy that's, instead of doing the hard work and understanding what the candidate actually does. That's a big part of it. Well, you mentioned um, copying. The, the DOD uh, requirements, the 8160, um, where they have the CISSP listed, do, do you think that industry and the defense industrial base has just started to copy that? Copy and paste it. I think it's the CEH. Is it the CEH or the Security Plus? I forget what it is. Security Plus is one of them, too. It happens. It, it's, it's certainly <laughs> happens. I mean, you know, we're here in D.C., and so it, there's also the 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 issue about contractors and whether how much you can charge for different people who who participate and the more credentials they have the more you can charge on the contract and so that's definitely something um, that happens um there's also this notion that well these credentials represent the best right cissp represents the best credential in some people's minds i don't want to make anybody mad so i'm simply saying this is what some people think and so it is a proxy, um, but but then you'd look and say, well, you can't even actually get your full CISSP until you have five years. <laughs> right. So, so to suggest that somebody should have that when they come in as an entry, I mean, it just makes no sense. And, and I think that we just don't necessarily, we collectively don't think it through, right? Um, and that's why I really do think we need to reconsider the way that position descriptions are put together and what exactly is it that we're trying to accomplish. It may be perfectly reasonable to say the purpose of this position description is to weed out because I want a very narrow pool. And if that's the case, fine, do that. But if the person, if the if the purpose of the particular position description is not to create a very narrow pool, but it's to get all of the people who could do this job, then we need to really consider reconsider the way that we're putting these position descriptions together. So if you're saying that it weeds out and we've copied and pasted, not to be the only white male in the room, but you'll end up with a you're a white male. <laughs> you, you'll you'll end up with um. A, a monolithic <laughs> environment where, where everyone's the same, but we won't be able to, to solve complex problems because right. we, we all think about it the same way. How do we then get that diversity into our ecosystem? That That's a big challenge, right? And so we have to begin with the way that we are um, putting these descriptions together, the language that, you're, that, that we're using. One of the things you talked about, even with with veterans is thinking about how are we translating language, right? I mean, people talk about the things that they do in different ways. Um, we have to make sure that we are going to places, whether physically or virtually, to recruit where there are, in fact, diverse groups of, of people, diverse across the spectrum, women, African-American, people from rural communities or densely urban communities, right? I mean, there are lots of different ways that we can begin to think about how someone's collection of life experiences is going to shape the way that they think. And also educating the HR professionals, educating the hiring managers, educating the members of the decision committees, right? To make sure that they understand what they need and and that they are able to articulate it and verbalize it in a way that is not um, is not pushing people away as opposed to bringing people in. 
And how do we do that without becoming uh, a compliance requirement um, yeah. on the list and just becoming another checkbox? That's a challenge, Ben. <laughs> Sorry, are you on no, I just want to say, if I had the answers to all of these, I would tell you, go to dianaburley.com. <laughs> well, I mean, I think other countries are doing something about Israel, right? They've got that mandatory requirement that you serve in the army, but they have such a really, really good cyber workforce because of it, because they have a great cyber army. They and have, we have a pipeline. A pipeline, right? So mm -hmm. I think our veterans are such an untapped resource that we could just literally fit like we could fill in a lot of seats right now if we wanted to and just be like hey veterans you are now cybersecurity people like go ahead right but i wish that was the truth so, so you brought up that point and earlier we were in a, a roundtable conversation where um val from cff mentioned that in china they have a school that pr produces six thousand cyber professionals um a month mm -hmm. and that's because the 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 society is different. So our society is democratic. How do we deal with that in a democratic way without forcing them? They're already veterans. They've already served. They already know the military complex. Like, why can't we secure our critical infrastructure using our veterans? That's such a pool that we don't even talk about sometimes, right? I know a lot of people like Paul Cummings, he, you know, Cyber Human Initiative. And there's uh, another great guy who does the um, uh, Books to Boots. Boots to Boots. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Boots to Boots. Those are the types of um, conversations that I, I wish would happen more where we realize how great our veterans are. And we have the diversity just built in because they've got mm -hmm. socioeconomic diversity of thought, diversity of skin color, diversity of everything. And, and the then mission, they're mission-oriented. Oh my gosh. There actually are a number, and this goes back to what I said a few, few minutes ago, is that there actually are a number of programs that focus on moving veterans into cyber, right? The challenge that we have is one of scale. Mm -hmm. And so how do we as a society take some of these really great examples and put the resources into them um, and resist the urge to grow our own new program, right? Because somebody who's listening is going to say, that's such a great point. I'm going to grow a new program to bring that. No, do not grow a new program to bring that. We have great programs. We need to figure out how to collaborate and scale in a way that really addresses the, the issue. Well, I know some of, the, some of the issues that Paul brings up all the time is that the that all the resources that veterans get in their uh, grants and their tuition bills, mm -hmm. sometimes they'll go out and they have these um, boot camps that claim to provide them with training. I mean, some some are potentially great, um, but some are some just test them to the test. Mm -hmm. um, is there a way that we can, from the government side, and now I'm going back to the compliance approach? Um, way to ensure that we're getting quality from our vendors if we're if they're providing training to our veterans so i you know this is a this is an issue for me right i mean i'm an educator and so this is an issue for me but the reality is that first of all you said the word quality quality means different things to different people and so we as a society, as an American society, the way that we think about education and training is that at the end of this period, you will be able to pass a test that says that you can do these five things. That's unfortunately, that's the way it is in elementary school. That's the way it is in high school. That's the way it is in boot camp. That, I mean, that's the way that we treat education here, right? How many times have you heard people talk about failure is good? 
very, very rarely, right? I tell my, I told my kids, I told my, I mean, that's right. That's because that, because that's who we are. Failure is good because it reduces your solution set and it allows you to think about a different pathway and you have to learn resilience and you learn analysis, analytical thinking and critical thinking, right? And so it, mm-hmm. it propels you, but that's not the way that our educational system is designed. And so can we get one boot camp or one university or one K-12 school to, to work in that way? Sure. I mean, that's what Montessori schools are all about, right? But the reality is, is that we've got to really look at the fundamental way that we see education in this country and begin to reshape it, not be, not for cyber, but for the next generation. We are at a paradigm shift in the way that we think about it education. There was a time when we moved into the industrial age where this was the right way to educate people, right? But we are now in the digital age. And so the current system... Going to a place. That's right. The current system is no longer sufficient to educate us for where we are as a society. And so we have got to begin to look at the building blocks and the basic assumptions of that system and begin to respect them for what they have done and where they have gotten us. We all went through that educational system and we're all sitting here. So so I don't want to disparage it, but I want to say that there is now a misalignment. And so we've got to begin to make that shift. Uh, one of the comments says, we as a government require the certifications to meet the job requirements. There's no technical applicants on the government side to bring people in that can. What? Oh. I'm just gonna show it. So yeah, bring yeah. people in. To, oh, I just. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that can bring people in to ensure they could do the jobs versus the cert vomit after everyone's names. <laughs> cert vomit. That's the first time I heard that one. So oh, the alphabet soup. Yeah. The, the alphabet soup. So. Oh. Much more colorful. <laughs> I mean, how could, what are some of the, the solutions do you think that we can combat that on the government side just to, to ensure that we're hiring folks that can actually do the job versus just having that, that checkbox? It's about being able to demonstrate, right? And then it becomes a function of really sitting down. And there's no, there's no quick answer to this, right? Because it, it's a balancing act between volume how do we move through an applicant pool? And that's, it, it, you know, to Naomi's point about, you know, I, I wouldn't call it laziness. I would just say that that degrees and certifications are a proxy and we do use them because if there's 30,000 people that we have to sift through, yeah. we don't have time to do a demonstration exercise with each one of those 30,000 people. Mm-hmm. We've got to narrow the pool in some way. Mm-hmm. So once we narrow that pool, then we can get to the place of saying, okay, now we're going to bring people in or virtually or physically and have them demonstrate some level of aptitude on whatever it is we we need them to, to do. But, but it becomes a balancing act, mm-hmm. right? And then we also have to consider the way that we assess the level of performance in that demonstration, right? Because then we start to bring in questions around equity and fairness. It's not just a, and bias, right? It's not just about sifting the pool. It's also about recognizing that if you look like me as a human being, 
being, I might naturally believe that your demonstration exercise was more successful than the person who doesn't look like me just because I have an affinity toward people who look like me, right? Or you but came it is the same area or, or you came from, right, we came from the same hometown or we, you know, it, we went to the same school or so it's something. And so it's becomes really a reflection of me, not mm-hmm. necessarily a reflection of the candidate. And so, and that's in the good, that's in the good um, thinking about people in a good way. There's also people that, that are not acting yeah. in yeah. good faith, right? So it becomes a very complicated, HR professionals have a very difficult job. Mm-hmm. Um, but until we begin to acknowledge the fact that the current system doesn't work as effectively as we needed to and wrestle with some of these really hard issues, we're never going to get over that hump. Absolutely. There's a quick question up on the top about CyberSeek. Um, is CyberSeek government funded? Have it is. It is. Oh, it okay. is. Yeah. It's just updates. Hey, Krista, oh. CyberSeek is government funded. Yes, uh, so it's cyberseek.org. And yes, it is government funded. It's based out of the NICE, NICE, NICE. Fr- mm-hmm. framework. And it provides an assessment. And through that assessment kind of provides uh, direction as to where your strengths and weaknesses are and the types of careers that you might need. Well, like, in CyberSeek, we have jobs. Yeah. It's vacancies. It shows you like where people are hiring and what kinds of roles they're hiring. Cyberseek.org. It's a really good reference. I, I point people to it all the time. Yes, okay. Is that your brainchild? No. Uh, that would be so cool to sit next to someone and be like, I go to your website all the time. Is that yours? Um, um, oh, that's your DAP. So I, I would say, like, let's start to wrap up. Um, we're here at this conference talking about the future. Um, what are some of the actionable steps that we can take today as let's start with hiring managers to improve our process today and try to make things better starting today i so for hiring managers i would sit down really with your security team and talk about don't look at the position description right ignore the position description talk about what does somebody need to have the day they walk in the door Right. And really begin from scratch and then see how well that lines up with what you're actually putting out into the world and then begin to think about why is it that we're saying they need to have this? Is it because they need it on day one or is it because we don't want to do training? internally right? <laughs> or, or is it because we can charge more if you're a contractor we can charge more right i'm not saying that any of those reasons are bad right everybody has to think about their budget and their time and their resources and all of that but as the more that you understand your motivations the better you can make informed decisions about where and when to push different levers um so that's something that I would absolutely do. And then I would think about what is it that we are going to ask of people in terms of um, not just what they have coming in, but what they're willing to do in terms of the continuous professional development. That, so, so for hiring managers, that's, that's where I would start. Okay. And now on the other side, hiring managers rely on a team. Like you mentioned, HR professionals have mm-hmm. a really hard job. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that they can do uh, to improve the way that they search or improve that the way that they screen candidates to be uh, to find more holistic um, candidates for these roles. So for me, everything is going to go back to talking to each other because HR 
and hiring managers, right? The teams need to have conversations. You know, everybody always thinks, you know, my my field is different, right? And so, so the natural stance is my field is different and the natural stance from the other side is, no, it's not. It's exactly the same as everybody else's, right? But the more you have conversations and you unbundle why you're asking the questions you're asking, why you're asking for the credentials that you're asking for, and what are the constraints, right? So if on the hiring manager side, you say, look, I don't want you to look for any credentials. I want you to do demonstration exams or, or whatever it is. We're going to do demonstration. They may not realize on the HR side that there's 30,000 applicants for each position. Right. And so they're just thinking about what they need. But if you begin to dialogue, you can begin to solution. Well, how can we get to a reasonable number without artificially or prematurely pushing people away that otherwise might be good candidates? And the same thing goes for when you start to engage with the academic institutions. And and I say academic institutions very broadly, whether we're talking about training providers or colleges and universities or frankly, high schools, um, because you can move straight in. Um, It's all about making sure that you are effectively communicating about the true needs of the role so that you can lay down the right information and provide the right pathway for people to to enter. So you you already started talking about the next generation. So we have... um folks that are in high school, some are in college, what are some of the things that you think they can do? And then we'll, we'll go on the hiring side after. So for the students, yes. the students, <laughs> yeah, speaking as a, as a mother whose daughter is graduating <laughs> in eight days, and no, I am not counting down. You know, part of it is, is, is being inquisitive, right? And, and being open to hearing about new possibilities. When I went through school, the the pace of new types of positions and new types of careers was much slower, right? You knew these are the things you can become. Mm -hmm. Today, there's jobs that will be available a year from now, two years from now that that I cannot articulate, right? Mm -hmm. But what I have to be willing to do, and as a student, what I have to be willing to do is to sit and listen and absorb, right? Be, Be inquisitive, be a learner, and then be willing to to think through how what you know, those base skills of what you know, can be applied into different types of situations and then be willing to do the work in order to to achieve that goal. Okay. Uh, And Naomi, as we start to pipeline um, these these candidates, these students, um, what are the things that you think hiring managers can do? Ooh, See potential in people, Chris. I think technical requirements are great, and yes, they're going to be necessary. But really, for entry-level folks, you're looking for soft skills. You're looking for the ability to work well together, communicate, have empathy, emotional intelligence, all these things that you don't think might be important that are actually really important, especially critical thinking and ability to learn. Because yes, everything in cybersecurity can be learned. In fact, it has been learned. No one just wakes up one day and just knows it, and they weren't born knowing it. They had to put in the effort. They have to learn. And also, I think hiring managers can start seeing potential in the people, maybe not hiring people that look just like them and think like them and, and you know, have the same educational background as them. And just think a little differently because you might be surprised. There's so many untapped uh, resources out there and so many great people out there. I wish you guys could see as, ma- as much as I could the potential in people. And, and it turns out to be a beautiful life, too, when you start seeing potential <laughs> in everyone. Mm-hmm. So, Diana, she mentioned a, a bunch of soft skills. Yes. Any hard skills. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, 
what else would you recommend uh, for hiring managers to do? That those are that, that's it. Right? <laughs> the only thing I would correct is I don't call them soft skills. I call them harder skills. Yes. <laughs> Critical thinking, you know, the ability to learn, that they analyze, communicate both verbally and and uh, written. Um, working collaboratively, frankly, working independently. Um, all of those are really critical for your ability to continue to move forward. And so, and I recognize that there may be some particular skills that you do need to have on day one that you learn in a, in a specific program and, and that's fine, um, but we can't discount all of those other fundamental skills, right? Because that's what will allow you to continue to learn and continue to grow and be productive and successful long term. And how do you pipeline for that? Well, <laughs> that's an hour to <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs> so, okay, we'll definitely have Diana back and we'll have a second part to this. But um, so, yeah, I mean, we're, I guess let's try to wrap it up then. Um, so, we talked a lot about our future generation. We just finished up with pipelining. Um, any advice you would give for someone that's maybe following in your footsteps that's out there listening to us right now? Do it. It is so much fun. Um, no, I mean, I, I think that you just have to be open and inquisitive and ready to do the work. I can't stress enough. Work, 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 work. It's not hard. It's fun, it's enjoyable, and do what feels right to you and, and be willing to, to continue to, to move forward. I would say two things we didn't really talk that much about, and that is having a mentor and being a mentor, right? Because that's really critical. It goes back to that. If you can see it, you can be it. And so finding people who, and your initial mentor may not look like you, right? I've had lots of mentors who don't look like me, but ultimately they connect me with someone who looks like me. Um, they connect me with other opportunities to see people. And so if you, if you are out there and you're thinking about this as a career field, um, don't be afraid to reach out. The worst that could happen is somebody doesn't respond. Send me an email. The worst that could happen is you have to send it again because I didn't respond, but eventually I will. Um, and, and just begin to learn as much as you can and just, to try that failure is absolutely an option. Quitting is what's not an option, right? Fail, you know how many times I failed? I failed like a thousand times. It's like what I do every day. And, and, it, and I love it because it means, okay, that didn't work. Let me try something else. And that's the way I think that's the attitude you have to have. So we, we talked about mentor, uh, uh, a lexicon earlier. How would you define mentorship? Because I, I'm a coach and I coach people to their abilities, but people mix up coach, teacher, mentor all the time. Mm -hmm. How would you define mentor? So a mentor is a truth teller. And so, you know, you're coaching someone to their ability. The mentor may say to you, you know what, this isn't the right. <laughs> tough conversational students. And you as the individual, as the mentee, must be willing to receive that tough conversation because just because the cybersecurity field is so big and so broad, 
that just because one path or two paths aren't the right pathways for you in no way says that you are not going to be a cybersecurity professional or a successful one, but you have to take advice and guidance so that so that you can find the path that fits when you find it. You know, it's like Dorothy and the Three Bears. And you know, <laughs> when you find that right one, it will fit. It will be comfortable. It will be easy and smooth. You just have to be willing to keep going. And the mentor is somebody who can help to guide you there, can help to open doors, can tell you. And how many mentors have I had? And I'm sure you've had two in your life that said, Diana, apply for that job do that thing, take that opportunity. And in my mind, I was thinking, I don't want that job. I don't want to go for that opportunity. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. But I trusted my mentor. And what a wonderful thing it was for me to do that because I ended up really being in a better place. And so it really is a trusted advisor who can um, provide you with the honest truth that you need. It's almost like a, a personal board. Yes. Board of advisors. Yes. Uh, Naomi, uh, and you laugh. It was so wonderful to have you here. Thanks, anyways. So, where can we reach out to you? You said email. Is is there another way we can reach out to you? Uh, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter at Diana Burley. Um, I'm at American University. Email is on the website. Feel free to send it. I do have a website, dianaburley.com, although it's really not where it needs to be. So I'm not even going to tell you that it is, but you can subscribe there. And when it is where it needs to be, um, you will get a notice. Here's well, thank you, everyone. Follow follow each and every one of us on LinkedIn. Uh, follow us on YouTube. Hit subscribe and that notification button. And then follow us on podcasts as well. Share with all your friends and family because we need as many as possible to be interested. <laughs> thank you all. Have a great day. In the rapidly evolving world of cybersecurity, your business needs a guide that's as dynamic as the threats you face. CPF Coaching LLC delivers unparalleled expertise to elevate your cybersecurity startup or business with a decade and a half of specialized experience. We're not just advisors, we're your strategic partners in growth and risk mitigation. Our tailored advisory services range from immediate hourly guidance to comprehensive three or six month packages, all supported with encrypted messaging for real-time assistance. For more information, cpfcoaching.com is your destination. Forge a path to success and distinction in the cybersecurity landscape. Connect with CPF Coaching LLC today and secure your business's future.